Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. We're starting a new four-week series on stories that Jesus told. Jesus was a great storyteller. He told stories throughout his ministry. And many of his stories dealt with a uh, kind of unpopular subject, dealt with the subject of money. And uh, that's the subject of this morning's uh, parable as well, money. I know if you're visiting churches, it's not the subject that you really are eager to hear about. But I, I, I guess my only uh, disclaimer is that uh, if you were to spend time with Jesus, I, you would hear more about money from him than you would from this pulpit. Jesus talked about money all the time. Uh, he recognized the importance of money as a real um, a sign of our spiritual health. So... Jesus and common sense as well uh, tell us that m how we treat money and what we spend our money on is reflective of what is important to us. So Jesus at one point would say, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus would also say and common sense would also suggest that how we think about money uh, and how we consider our savings is reflective of our trust in God. And so Jesus said famously, do not worry about these things. Do not worry about what you will eat, what you will drink. Don't worry. Trust in God. So Jesus had a lot to say about the subject of money. And it's good news. I know it's not our favorite subject. i got to say it's not my favorite subject to preach about either. But if we listen to what he has to say to us, I think you will find it good news for you as well. I think in any sermon uh, series, in any sermon that addresses this subject, I just want to make a, a clarification or distinction. You know, a church has a budget, and uh, a church uh, depends from an earthly point of view on the generosity of its parishioners. And uh, I think it's important to separate a church budget, which we have, uh, from the spiritual disciplines that come with generosity. So what I'm about to say is not a fundraising uh, plea. Uh, I'm not preaching this sermon because I need you to give to the church or to the building fund. Uh, you all are an exceptionally generous congregation. Um, every year our budget increases, and every year uh, we meet our budget. The only exception was this year, where we had a 900000 roughly $900,000 budget. We're 0.04% underneath of that. Now, that's uh, counterbalanced by an exceedingly generous, your generous gifts to our building fund, raising nearly $200,000 for our uh, future home. Usually when a church receives that much in one area, they'll see a decrease in the other area, and that has not happened due to your generosity. So all that just, by way of update, it is the end of the year and beginning of a new, a new fiscal year for us, but also to separate uh, the principles that we learn about our personal use of money is separate and distinct from uh, the operations of a church. We try to address that once a month or once a year in November, so this is not that time. But Jesus does have a lot to say about money, and it's important that we listen to him. And I think if we look at this parable, we're going to find a couple of important principles. These are all principles that are found throughout the Bible. And they're important principles that lead to a really predictable application. And the application, I'll give, a, give it away before we get there, the application is that we should be sacrificially generous with everything that God gives us. 
So that's the application. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. But the application is built on three important principles. And there are three principles that we're going to find in this text. And I think if you believe, if, you, if the principles make sense, then I think you will find that the application is uh, unavoidable. So let's start with some principles of our biblical approach to wealth, shall we? Uh, so two, three questions we're going to ask of this passage. It's a great story. I picked it originally just because it's one of those stories that if you've read it, it's kind of a head-scratcher. Uh, it doesn't make sense to us on first blush. It appears that Jesus is commending some practices like st stealing and dishonesty that are in other places uh, condemned. Uh, I referenced Mark Twain last week, and he's, Mark Twain famously said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts that I do understand. And, and this, that, that principle is true for this passage. There's some of this story that we don't quite understand, but there's a lot that we do. And it makes a couple of foundational statements. And those, so the questions that I want to explore are, whose is it? Who does our wealth belong to? We're going to circle back to that same question so the second question is, whose is it really? The second point. And the third question is, what are we to do with it? All right? So whose is it? Who does your wealth belong to? Our passage identifies a couple of characters. There's a rich landowner. And underneath that rich landowner, there are apparently uh, farmers, farmers who rent their land uh, from the rich landowner. So you have someone who's obviously been making olive oil. He has gallons of oil. There's some, another person who has been farming wheat. And in between these farmers and the rich landowner, there's another person, the main character in our story, who is uh, the shrewd manager. Right? So he is in charge of managing the land for the rich owner. The Greek title for him is oikonomos. Oiko means home, nomos means law or ruler. So he is the ruler of the house on behalf of another. He is managing property that does not belong to him. In other words, he is a steward. He is a steward of something that doesn't properly belong to him. What is our relationship to our wealth? We are stewards of it. Now you're probably aware that the language of stewardship is very prominent within the Bible. Adam and Eve are first introduced to us as stewards, stewards of God's creation. They are caring for something that they did not create. Uh, pastors are referred to as stewards of the mystery of God. We didn't make this up. We don't get to change it. We, we are responsible to be faithful to it. You're stewards. And so you may think, well, I understand, Pastor, I understand how you are a steward of God's word. You didn't make that up. I understand how, you know, we're stewards of creation, because obviously we didn't make that up either. It's been given to us, but I have a problem. My problem is I actually did something to produce my wealth. I'm responsible for it. It is mine. And yes, to a degree, that's absolutely true. And practical common sense and biblical wisdom affirms that if you work hard, typically you make money. So the book of Proverbs is chock full of passages like this. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works their land will have plenty of bread. You find that 
all throughout the Bible. Hard work equals money. However, right, however, this farmer needs much more than just hard work in order to get bread. He needs a whole lot that is completely out of his control. He needs rain. He needs sun. He needs favorable weather. He needs a lot that he, if he didn't have those things, if he did not have those things that only God can provide, he'd just be moving dirt around, right? Are you familiar with the book Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell? Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book, and it's, uh, he identifies seemingly uh, insignificant statistics uh, that have a disproportionate effect. I'm operating from memory on this. I read it some years ago, so my, uh, don't quote me the specifics. The general principles are true. So he discovered, Malcolm Gladwell discovered that something like 75% of all men on the national hockey team were born in October, or something like that. And so it's a head scratcher. Why would that be? Why would date of uh, birth month affect, affect your performance on a hockey team? Well, because those people who were born in October were at the, the biggest in their league. And because they were the biggest in the league, they ended up being the best in their league, usually. And because they were the best in their league, they received the most coaching in their league. And they became better and better and better. Another example, Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs and a, a handful of others who had such phenomenal impact and phenomenal success in the world of computing were all born within a few years of one another. Why is this important? They all came of age. They all entered the professional world right as we as a culture were tiptoeing into the waters of computing. The point is if Wayne Gretzky was born in October or January instead of October, he wouldn't be Wayne Gretzky. If Bill Gates and Steve Jobs wasn't born, were born five years earlier or five years later, they wouldn't have the success that they enjoyed. They, they, we are all dependent upon factors that are way outside of our control. And so the Bible can affirm in one hand, yes, hard work, your barns will be full. And on the other hand, say, everything comes from you, O Lord. Everything. And there's no contradiction to the two. And if you have wealth, yes, you probably worked hard, good. Hard work is a good thing, but there's also a lot of factors that are completely outside of your control that added to the con that contributed to that. Whose is it? We are stewards of something that is not entirely ours. But whose is it really? Second point. I say whose is it really because I think this language of stewardship is, is, is popular today. Like you don't need to be in a church to think uh, uh, Think of yourself as a steward. People outside the church think in terms of stewardship. Right? But the Christian faith adds something to this language of stewardship. It adds accountability. I'm just not sure that's part of the, uh, the definition of stewardship elsewhere. In other words, you're a steward, yes, but a steward who will one day give account. And that's what our manager has discovered. He's been caught. He hasn't been doing a good job at managing his master's resources, and he's about to be called to account. I was speaking with a financial manager, a good friend. And they, this financial manager, explained to me, described to me the burden of their job. They said that my job is difficult, their job is difficult, because every once in a while, they have to have a reckoning conversation 
a conversation when they sit down with someone who has entrusted their wealth to them and they have to tell this person, I've lost it. I've lost what you gave to me, or at least a portion of it. To support the sense of burden that he felt, he cited the number of suicides that occurred on October of 1929 when the stock market lost 40% of its value. Many people in the financial world took their lives. Why? Not because they lost their own fortune. That is difficult enough. It's because they lost the fortune of another. And they simply couldn't take the guilt, the shame of having that day of reckoning to sit in front of another person and say, what you gave to me is now gone. And I just don't know if many of us think in that term, if that accountability enters our, enters our thoughts about our relationship to God, that one day each of us will stand before God and give an account of what he has given to you. And it's not just here. It's not just an isolated passage. It's all throughout the Bible. One of the stories we'll explore. God has given a variety of talents. And then he, a man, rich man gives a variety of talents and then goes away. And upon his return, he asks, what have you done with what I've given you? Two made a return on their investment. They are told, well done. One buried their talent. He is turned away. It is a consistent biblical theme that you and I will have to give account of what has been entrusted to us. We'll give an account of what we did with our time. We'll give an account of what we did with our, our skill, our God-given skills. We'll give an account of what we, how we handled our relationships. We'll give an account of, if you have children, of how you have cared for the children under your care. One of my favorite prayers is from the Byzantine Book of Common Prayer, and it's a prayer for parents for their children. And the very end says this, enable me to appear with them at your awesome judgment, and there without fear say, here I am, Lord, with the children you have given me, that together with them, praising your great goodness and eternal love, I may glorify your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. I cite that only because of the sense of accountability that is all throughout that prayer. One day we will stand and give an account. You may think, well, gosh, I just don't buy it. I think that what I have made is I, all mine. I, I don't think that I'm answerable to anyone. And if that is the case, then the point of application that I will get, eventually get to you will make no sense to you. But if you at least think there's a possibility that what you have is not entirely dependent upon you, and if you believe that one day that you will give an account for what has been entrusted to you, then you may want to consider what the shrewd manager did. Let's look at what he did. He realizes that judgment is coming. Let's turn there. Luke 16, he realizes, notice there's no argument. He doesn't say, wait, 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 
No, he, 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 knows he's, he knows he's on the wrong end, but he has a plan. He says, this is what I'll do. So he calls up uh, the various people who rent from the rich landowner, and he cuts the bill, cuts the bill substantially, cuts the bill by a year's uh, worth of labor by one commentator's estimation. So knowing that his time is short, the shrewd manager uses his resources to secure friendships for himself for the time when he will be kicked out. Isn't that what he does? Absolutely, that's what he does. And look how Jesus applies this parable to you and me. Do you see what he says? Chapter 16, verse 9. I tell you, you go and make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Maybe worldly possessions would be a different way to translate unrighteous wealth. You go and make friends for yourself by means of worldly possessions so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One commentator writes this, your property, your ability, your time, your money belong to this life only. Yet, what will happen to you in the next life depends on what you do with those things now. So make sure that your use of these things your property, your ability, your time, brings you into a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. And that's what this shrewd manager does. He uses the resources that have been entrusted to him to secure for himself friendships. And Jesus commends the manager because of his shrewdness. Do you have a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death? Are you friends with Jesus? You know the difference between a friend and an acquaintance? The difference is you will make sacrifices for a friend. You don't make sacrifices for acquaintance. You'll inconvenience yourself for friends, not for an acquaintance. Jesus calls us his friend. And he defines his friendship because he lays down his life for us. And so the question I simply want you to ponder is, are you a friend of Jesus or are you just an acquaintance? Do you have a friendship that will last beyond the grave? And I don't mean this to be crass or gauche, but there's one surefire way that you can know if Jesus is your friend or your acquaintance. Just look at how you spend the resources that have been entrusted to you. Are you spending your resources in such a way that you are securing friendships that last through eternity? That's a good question to ponder. I think the Bible gives you and me many, many reasons for our generosity. Our generosity is inspired by our gratitude for God. Thank you for what you have given to me. Our generosity is inspired by the needs of others. Our generosity is inspired by the example of Jesus, who though he was rich became poor. 
And here in this parable, Jesus gives us another often overlooked reason for your generosity. And frankly, I find it a very compelling reason for our generosity. Use your wealth now to secure friendships that will last through eternity. In isolation, this motivating factor could lead to a distorted sort of transactional faith I give to get Yes, our generosity should be inspired by the needs of others. Yes, our generosity should be inspired by gratitude. But our generosity can also be inspired by the shrewd manager who used his resources now to secure friendship, which lasts into eternity. And so what's the point? The point is simply this. I want to encourage your sacrificial generosity to the work of Christ. This church another church, other organizations. I think a good starting point for biblical generosity, sacrificial generosity, is 10%. The first fruits of what God gives to us. That's the pattern established in the Old Testament, and I think it's applicable in the New. Not everyone agrees with that, but I, I believe it is a good standard for you and me to adhere to. And you may think, 10%, no way, too much, that's impossible. And I just want to say it's impossible until you give it a shot. C.S. Lewis was asked, is Christianity hard or easy? He says, it's hard until you try it. And I think if you approach your, your wealth under the guidance, that I think the biblical guidance of sacrificial generosity, you will find it surprisingly easy. This morning I was reading in Proverbs chapter 3, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats bursting with wine. And I bet if you talk to anybody who approached their finances in under these guidelines, they would affirm, as I would affirm, that they are surprised by God's goodness and generosity to, to them as I am to me. So the application of this passage is for us to practice sacrificial generosity. And the point of application is built on three basic principles, three principles that you can find in this parable and three principles that you find throughout the Bible. Principle number one, that we are stewards of a wealth that is not entirely ours. Number two, that one day we will give an account of our stewardship. And point number three, the stewardship of our time, our talent, our possessions, now in this life, will impact the next. And so make sure, friends, that you are using what God has given you to secure friendships which will last through eternity.